Last night I had a dream that I was in my living room and all of these bright green shoots started coming up through the floorboards and tearing the house apart and suddenly the whole house split open like an egg and I walked down to this enormous redwood forest, a kind of forest I've never seen before because all of the forests around here are spindly and mean and crooked and this had such soft green moss and I could feel it under my feet and I just kept walking and walking and walking until I came to the savanna and suddenly I was on all fours and walking and walking and walking and I found a person in a lion costume who pointed out to me that I was also in a lion's costume and we continued walking side by side like that for some time until we came to this cabin and stood upright again and were chased inside by these enormous long-snouted wolves with just bright yellow eyes and we barred the door and we heard the wolves outside but the man still took the time to take off his costume and crawl into bed across from me and I looked at him and I looked around the room and thought he was terribly beautiful and then I woke up and I was so alarmed at having lost the ability to be in this world that I I went to the bathroom and I came back and I very deliberately took off my pajamas and got back into bed that way just so that when I came back to my dream I would wake up being able to feel what this man felt like against my skin which is an odd thing to think about someone you've never known but there is something so important about getting lost and I think that way about dreams sometimes too that they're so important because of the way they let you get lost, how safely they let you get lost. Because getting lost isn't like a quest, it's not anything that you can win at or solve. It, the only end point in getting lost is to not be lost any longer. And even then, when you stop being lost, and you suddenly know where you are and you have your bearings, sometimes you find that you may do anything. Just remember what it was like to feel so lost and outside yourself. Even when it's terrifying. You're listening to The Second Page, a radio show of stories hosted by Harris Laparoff. This week, we're bringing you stories on getting lost. It's a big, very big, big world out there, and there's lots of different ways to find yourself lost. This week, we're bringing you just a few. You're listening to The Second Page on WOBC 91.5 FM, Oberlin College and Community Radio.
That was Amanda Lazada. I'm Harris Laparoff, and our first story this hour is from me. For the past several years, I've had bad New Year's Eves. It's hard to say what exactly accounts for this. It's partly probably my habit of keeping plans loose. I've never been very good at planning things in advance, and some years, when New Year's Eve rolls around, I haven't got a thing on my schedule. Partly, it's that New Year's Eve is a holiday that I've always most enjoyed when I'm serving as party host, but I haven't had a house available to host a New Year's Eve party in for years. It is almost certainly partly because every New Year's Eve I spend in my childhood home of Berkeley, California, instead of my home for the rest of the year in Oberlin, Ohio. New Year's Eve is meant to be celebrated surrounded by friends, but my closest friends of the most recent years of my life are scattered geographically and mostly on the other side of the country. So my New Year's Eves of past few years have been mediocre, spent missing friends more than spent with friends. But this year, I was finally really looking forward to New Year's Eve. An old high school friend was throwing a party and had invited me. It looked like a lot of my good friends from back in the day were going to be there, and I was excited to see them, to reconnect with them all again. But when New Year's Eve finally came, I ended up getting a late start, not leaving my house on foot until 9.30. I knew the direct path to my friend's house, roughly a 20-minute walk along the same streets I had biked every day for four years to get to high school. But I had promised to bring a bottle of whiskey, which meant taking a detour to the local supermarket, and then traveling along a different path so as to avoid doubling back. Walking around Berkeley always makes me feel pensive and nostalgic. I love the city I grew up in. It feels so comfortable and familiar, but also a little sad. There are memories on every corner. This is the store where I bought a fine ceramic tea set for my high school girlfriend on our one-year anniversary. This is the park where I used to sit with my friends every day after school. There are experiences on every block that I have lived once and will never live again. This, I keep telling myself, is not my home anymore. And when I think about this, I think about my father and what he said to me in New York. My father grew up in New York, in Brooklyn, and we go back there about once a year to visit his mother and sister. And when we visit, my father always seems like such a New Yorker. He lapses into a New York accent. He becomes an aggressive New York driver. He takes me to all the bars and cafes that he spent his adolescence in. Which is why it seemed so out of character to me when we were walking down a Brooklyn street one day, not too many years ago, and he said to me, You know, I don't know this city as well as I should. I've been away from it for too long. And he said it a little wistfully as though he were thinking about the life that he would have had if he had spent those years in the city of his birth instead of in California. And I could see in his eyes how Brooklyn was his home, but it also was not his home. And I couldn't help but wonder if 40 years from now, this will be my relationship with Berkeley, a distance that no visit can overcome. I wonder if I will feel sad about it then, how long I've been away. I got a little taste of it that night, as I wandered the streets of Berkeley feeling nostalgic. I took a street that I thought ran north-south, but I should have known that Berkeley streets are not on a grid. Many of them run diagonally, crossing each other. 
The street took me down a long path out of my way, as I saw the lights of San Francisco straight ahead, shining across the bay. I knew I was walking in the wrong direction, but I couldn't remember which way to turn. So there I was, lost in the city of my birth, the city that I spent twenty years of my life navigating every day, and I was a stranger to it. It was strange to me. So not knowing where to go, I kept walking. And in thirty minutes, I did eventually run into a street that I recognized, Gilman Street which I had walked along so many times before on the way to my mother's house, before she moved an hour south to Fremont. I turned onto Gilman Street and started the long trek east. It was 11 p.m. when I finally arrived at the party. I had made it before New Year's. And when I opened the door, the house was filled with people I recognized, people I hadn't seen in years. It was so warm in that house. They embraced me and were happy to see me, and we caught up as best we could for this one night. And for this one night, it did feel a little like coming home. Woke up about 10 a.m. It's 65 degrees Even though it's barely March Since all winter it's been freezing This is cause for celebration Cause for picnics and so I opened up my savings and grabbed a couple 20s. That was a story from me, Harris Laparoff. Next up, a story by Hillary Carter. All names have been changed to protect the innocent, and, if we're being honest, me. I have a history of making horribly misguided romantic gestures to impress guys. One summer between semesters at Oberlin, I had a coworker named Sam, a really funny, charming guy, and a compulsive liar. For instance, at one point he had the entire camp, including the staff, convinced that his sister was a member of the Pussycat Dolls. But in one of his more endearing fabrications, he invented a walrus that was living in our lake and answered letters that the campers wrote to it. Here's where my brilliant idea came in. I was going to write a letter to the walrus. This way, the confession of my feelings would be light and fun, low pressure. I wish I'd made a copy of it, but it was something along the lines of, Dear walrus, I really like this guy, Sam, and he doesn't know, and I don't think he likes me back, and, and that's okay, but I just needed him to know how I feel. Please advise. I was terrified that if I left the note in his mailbox that other people might see it when he read it. So I found out where he slept and left the note under his pillow. Because, you know, that's not creepy at all. I guess he found it because he avoided talking to me or even really looking at me for the rest of the time we were at camp together. Half a year later, back at Oberlin, when I realized I had a crush on my Oberlin classmate, Miles, I knew I had to be a little less creepy and overwhelming. So I left an anonymous valentine drawn in crayon on his dorm room door on Valentine's Day. Okay, but seriously, okay, I did do that. But I also resolved to go ahead and ask him out on a date. A month or so later, I found myself outside his dorm room door again, but this time I was determined to actually knock on it and talk to him. 
I hesitated outside the door for at least half an hour, and if someone else walked by, I pretended I was walking to the bathroom so I wouldn't seem like a stalker. And then I finally did it, because if I didn't do it now, I would totally miss The Daily Show in a few minutes. I knocked on the door. Yeah? Uh, hey. Just got out of the shower. I was too ner nervous to notice that this was obviously a lie. Sorry. After a moment, he opened the door. His hair was dry, but I didn't notice. Hey, um, I really didn't mean to bother you, but I was, um, wondering if you were going to see that play our friends are in. I don't know. It's a busy weekend for me. I was thinking about it. I was, um, just wondering if you, um, if you wanted to go with me on Saturday. I mumbled while looking down. He looked at me incredulously. Sure. Cool. This must have been really awkward for you. I nodded. He gave me a hug. Twice. I'm not really sure why that happened. I, I probably looked like I was about to cry. Because that's sort of how I felt. Well, um, I have to go do stuff. I'll see you later. And I left. Success! Saturday night came, and he never came to claim the seat I saved for him. After the show, I knocked on his door again, no answer. A friend convinced me to call him later that evening. Hello? Oh! Hey, Miles, this is Hillary. Hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm... I'm... So, what happened? He swore. I'm so sorry, Hillary. I completely forgot. I've been trying to finish this paper. It's late, and I, I just got totally wrapped up in it. I'm really stressed out. Oh, that's okay. Probably for the best, since I don't want to lead you on or anything. Right. This is even more awkward over the phone. I knocked on your door. Really? Yeah, it... It's okay. I'll just let you finish your paper. I hung up and cried a lot. So, being straightforward and not crazy didn't work out, and that leads us to the number one dumb thing I've done to get a guy's attention. I was working in Vermont that summer, and my internet friend and longtime crush Alex lived in Connecticut. He failed to answer the letter I wrote to him, so... I decided it would be really adorable if I went to Connecticut unannounced and sat down at a table at the restaurant where he waited tables. Cleverly disguised with sunglasses or something, I would wait until he walked by and then get his attention by saying, Hey, waiter, there's a fly in my soup. I must have picked that up from a Cary Grant movie or something. I was sure he would think this was hilarious and charming and then I really had no plans for what would happen next. On a day off, I decided to do it and called the restaurant to see if he'd be working that night. The hostess checked and said that yes, he was working that night. There are a number of things that could have gone wrong with this plan. 
Maybe he wouldn't recognize me. We only met that one time, and maybe he would be upset that I had surprised him or creeped out that I had showed up uninvited. But I never considered that I might get lost. This was before everybody had a GPS in their car, so printing out directions from Google Maps was still the best way to get them. These directions successfully got me all the way to the city of Manchester, Connecticut. I had been here once before when I met up with Alex the first time. It's a labyrinth of strip malls, all beige walls and glowing neon signs. It's a pretty boring landscape, but it was a comfortingly familiar sight after a few hundred miles of driving. This is where I had met Alex the first time. I passed a street sign. Buckland. That was the street I was supposed to be looking for. The road must have turned into it without my realizing it. I felt the same rush I always get when I'm about to make myself vulnerable to a guy in the most pathetic way possible. Street numbers passed. 400, 300. Gosh, I was really going to do this stupid thing. Okay. 266 should be coming up next, but where was it? There were only trees and fields on the side of the road. I had left the strip mall area. I passed a house, but I couldn't find a number. Weird. When I crossed under the highway, I figured I must have missed it. I drove back the same way. Nothing. I stopped in front of a house that was where I thought it should be, but it was 252. Now what? Taking deep breaths, I reviewed my map. Hills. Buckland Hills. I hadn't missed the turn. I'd never taken it. Relieved, I got back on the road. Okay. No Buckland Hills this way, but if I turn around and go back past... There! There it was! I felt my face flushing again with anticipation and relief. But then I was driving driving, and I can't see the restaurant anywhere. I turn into random shopping centers, wind down arbitrary drives, still searching for this place. At one point I turned the wrong way onto a busy street. Cars honked at me as I desperately maneuvered around them to get to back to the right side. I pull into a Walmart parking lot and sob. I called my friend Chelsea. Did you try calling him? No. Call him, and if he doesn't answer, call me back. Duh, why didn't I do that before? I call Alex. No answer. Of course, he's at work. I leave a message, trying to sound casual. Hey, Alex. I'm in town, and I was hoping to, to swing by your work and see you, but, uh, <laughs> I got a little lost. Despondent. I called Chelsea again. What am I going to do? You're going to drive back to Vermont. I must be hours away from Vermont, Chelsea. I'm so tired. You can do it. What else are you going to do? I decided a few hours of driving was better than crying myself to sleep in a Walmart parking lot. I managed to get directions at a local gas station to get back to the highway and Drove a few hours and was back in Vermont. Never even heard back from Alex until months later. He had been depressed and had somewhat cut himself off from 
friends and family until he recovered. In its own way, having a crush on someone is kind of like being lost. You know where you'd like to be, but you don't know which way to go in order to get there. Except it's much easier to get directions when you're talking about highways. Pack your bags and leave this town. I don't want to see you coming round. No, I don't want to waste my precious time again. Hilary Carter, Oberlin class of 2009, is a former writer for the Dead Here Footsteps and the Semi-Automatic Players. She now resides in Columbia, Missouri. I watched our next story being composed for hours, though it ended up being the shortest story of this episode. My on Plout explains. My dear friend Harris asked me to share a story about loss. So I wrote a story about my loss of music and my finding of something else. But when it came time for me to tell my story, I found that my document had completely disappeared. Now, as an internet user, I like to use something we call the cloud, which is that ephemeral space where everything exists and yet nothing exists at all, to save my story. So it is very ironic to me that the place that is considered to be the place that will keep everything safe is, in fact, the place where I lost it all. As a storyteller, I can appreciate ironies such as this. But it doesn't mean that my emotions played along immediately. When I first realized that my story had disappeared, I was dismayed. I was irate. There were perhaps a few expletives. Some cursing to the internet gods. A little bit of bargaining. And then I realized that the story that I needed to share was not, in fact, the story of the loss of music, but the loss of the loss of music, which is what I am sharing with you right now. My dear, I'll give you 60 seconds to disappear. My on Plout is Oberlin College, class of 2010. Her motto this year is be a human. Our next story about getting lost is from Shane Clark. You're listening to The Second Page on WOBC 91.5 FM, Oberlin College and Community Radio. I'm Shane Clark. I'm a junior at Oberlin College studying urban analysis and design and I was born without a sense of direction. I didn't want to tell this story um, because it's embarrassing and also because I don't think I've ever really been able to explain what it's like not to have a sense of direction. It's not as if I'm always lost necessarily, it's just I never know where I am in relation to anything else. (laughs) Probably the easiest way to start is just to tell you that I don't know my right from my left. I mean, yeah, I can, I can pick up my hands and I can look and I can say, well, there's the L, so that's left. 
But in the everyday situation, you really don't have time to do that. And it's dangerous. I, I can't really drive unless I have somebody who is there with a very prominent index finger telling me when I have to turn because, you know, you turn left at a red light and it's not good. They don't test your sense of direction when they're giving you a driver's license, but I think they really should. There's also sort of more benign situations, like I love to contradance, and I've been contradancing my whole life, but the caller is always saying, you know, alamand right, alamand left, and when you're spinning around in circles, it's really hard to visualize which of your hands is making an L. Uh, so usually at the beginning of every dance, I'll dig my thumbnail into my left palm, and that way my left hand hurts a little bit, and I can know that that's the one I need to stick out. Um, shopping is, you know, a stressful experience no matter what, but for me, when I go into a store on a street and then I come out of the store, it's really hard to figure out which way I need to turn it to continue going in the direction that I was before. So when I go shopping, a lot of the times I'll kind of walk back and forth uh, up and down the street until I realize that I've been going back the way I came. Maybe the hardest thing about not having a sense of direction is is dealing with other people, you know, like social situations. I remember um, the first time that anyone at Oberlin asked me out for a dinner date. Um, you know, I live in Tank Co-op, and he asked me out to just one of those restaurants that's right on the same street as Tank. And um, I, I was pretty excited, and I, I left like 15 minutes, you know, to spare because I thought maybe I'll get lost. Um, but I got to the restaurant about 30 minutes late anyway, um, just because I got lost on, on one street in Oberlin. Uh, so, I mean, I told him what happened. I don't know if he believed me or not, but uh, he didn't ask me out again. So, yeah, I mean, my friends all sort of know that this is the way I am. And, and every time I get lost, it's, you know, I'll laugh about it. It's kind of funny, but it's also frustrating. I think of myself as sort of a intelligent, competent woman who can figure things out for herself, but there's this sort of daily evidence of just failure. You know, I go out and I say, I am know where I'm going. I've been here before. And then all of a sudden, nothing looks familiar and my heart starts beating a little faster and I just have no idea where I am. Um, it's like when you take a test and you know you studied, but you just can't remember the answer. I just can't figure out where I am, how to get where I'm going. Um, and it's, it's hard. But there's sort of another side of it too that I've learned to embrace, which is that I'm kind of constantly a tourist in wherever I live. You know, everything looks new to me. I never get sick of walking around Oberlin because it always kind of looks like a little bit of a different place. Uh, I remember sophomore year when I learned that Asia House and Keep are right next to each other, even though you also have to walk three blocks to get from one front door to the other. That's, that's amazing to me, it's kind of miraculous. You know, um, space and time 
aren't sort of these solid things for me the way they are for everybody else. And, and I have really good friends who don't judge me too harshly when I call them and tell them that I'm lost on the way from Talcott to, you know, Old Barrows. They just help me and still treat me like a respectable member of society. So um, I'm grateful for that. And, you know, maybe one day I'll grow out of it or they'll be implanting everybody with little GPS systems in their brains at birth and it won't really be a problem for me anymore. Shane Clark is a junior at Oberlin College studying urban analysis and design. Our next story from Sean Hansen. I preface the story with these words. I am not a capitalist. At my fake birthday party last week, there came a point when people were intoxicated enough to cry without anyone noticing, and I cried. More like wept, or climbed next to one of my closest friends. CJ put his arm around me so that his tattooed bees crept down my side and insisted that my angst was a sign of passion, not hopelessness. I wept because I could not and still cannot reconcile my politics with my life, and I seek no sympathy in this. Certainly in a post-Occupy world where radical politics are the butt of an already tired joke, I know better than to bring sob stories about my generation to a public forum. To assuage the offendable, I am employed. I have been employed to a massive corporation for well over a year now, underpaid, overworked, just like the rest of middle America. I am reliant on my employer to make ends meet for rent, to afford food, and for the incredibly precious health care that so many of my friends lack. When I have internal bleeding, I have the privilege of paying 20% of my medical bills, and as a result, I've never developed the fearlessness and sense of invincibility that propels my peers into reckless but ultimately worthwhile life decisions. I am employed 25, and already frail. I took a corporate job when I first moved to Brooklyn with my ex-boyfriend. The company was prodigious in scope, anonymous in its Craigslist ad, and it surprised me during my interview to see two of the seven floors that made up its large Manhattan office. Minus my recently paid security deposit, I had $200 in my bank and was living between Chipotle burritos and Cinnabons every other day trying to make money work. I was six foot tall and barely weighed 135 pounds. When I failed to negotiate a median salary in my field, I took the offer anyway. I needed it, and the opportunity was one that would grant me corporate IT experience instantly, removing me from unemployment, removing me from the days spent in my ex-boyfriend's father's basement. This much I know now, if you wind up doing what you want with your life immediately after graduation, you are one of the fortunate. Few people, save those who jump immediately into graduate school or perfect jobs, find themselves in a stable place months later. I know many friends who are underemployed, paying off student loans, working jobs that have nothing to do with their desires, and are happy. I found no such solace in this. I simply felt lost immediately and deeply. My job was mere blocks from Zuccotti Park. 
I had literally just told myself I would join Occupy Wall Street every day that I finished 10 job applications. And I had been on my way the next day when I received the offer. Mere weeks later, I was wheeling carts into freight elevators, listening to blue-collar workers making the same salary as me, complaining about the movement's ignorance. I had my chance to be a radical, and I turned it down to work 12-hour shifts, leaving work at least once a week at midnight, sleeping five hours, and then returning. Even at Oberlin, I wasn't very politically active. I thought about issues constantly, and somehow managed to metamorphose from a libertarian in a small Kentucky high school to a strong Democrat at graduation five years later. However, during trips to protest mountaintop removal, I remembered my Appalachian family members and felt too strongly that they knew the situation better than I ever would, and the last thing they, as strong mountain folk needed, was a bus full of white college students intervening in their affairs. When I canvassed, I sought to increase overall voter turnout rather than support any candidate. As a person who never really desired to get married, I didn't have a strong stand with the HRC on gay marriage and was more so incensed with their past history regarding transgender activism. I stewed, quietly, and turned away from opportunity to take action. It was months later, after I recognized how poisonous the heavy work hours were in tandem with living with my ex, that I met CJ. It was only supposed to be a boring, casual date, a tepid friendship at best. I was intending to fill the void only for a few hours, See a museum I'd avoided up until then, like all the other dates I'd gone on. I was not supposed to have gamelan instruments on the floor of my bedroom when he dropped by. He was not supposed to recognize them. He was not supposed to have almost gone to Oberlin, nor overlapped at a concert I nearly attended on campus when he was brought in, out of state, by a professor's request. I was not supposed to know that professor. We were not supposed to have sat there in my apartment instead for well over an hour, skipping the museum, discussing music and books, but we did, and he mentioned the book he was reading, Judith Halberstam's The Queer Art of Failure. The next time we hung out, it was at a queer bookstore, an activist center that he volunteered with, Blue Stockings, in the Lower East Side. I bought the Halberstam, we split dumplings in Chinatown, walked to Christopher Pier, and he said goodbye before moving to Chicago to attend graduate school. His arms were not covered in bees then, but as I saw him over the months he returned, I learned of his plan to get the tattoos, the meaning of each of them, and I saw them added to his flesh whenever he rolled up his sleeves. His last gift before moving was a recommendation to the volunteer coordinator at Blue Stockings. I somehow jumped the stack of forms and found myself in a closing shift in what can be described by all too many labels, but most appropriately by none. Feminist. Queer. Trans. POC anti-racist, anti-capitalist, anarchist, coffee shop, bookstore, meeting hall, safe space, Oberlin, away from Oberlin. In the week where I still felt the tinge of a best friend's move, I devoured queer art of failure. Halberstam taught me life lessons in getting lost. Being found, it turns out, was not so powerful a tool as I thought. While it meant financial stability, as best as the lower middle class could offer, Self-preservation closed as many doors as it opened. The treatise was simple, and Google Books' description does it the most justice. Quote, Failure sometimes offers more creative, cooperative, and surprising ways of being in the world, even as it forces us to face the dark side of life, love, and libido. 
It was really then, gin and tonic in one hand, mocked twice already for reading at a gay bar, I don't do that anymore, that I realized I was lost. Realized and began to accept. There is no fairy tale ending to the story, certainly not yet, and I don't think there needs to be one. Being lost is the state of my life still. I've volunteered with Blue Stockings for nearly half a year now. I've read countless other queer theory texts, and I still hold down the same corporate job. I've come into contact with a rich, unfinished legacy of artwork and activism, crafted by the hands of victims of AIDS, spurring me to join a vaccination study for HIV. I produced little in a year, still make drastically less than my fellow computer science alumni, but I no longer believe my self-worth is measured in what I produce. Paradoxically, I've begun to create more than ever before, though just barely. I've learned why my political beliefs are beliefs and not just opinions. And I haven't reconciled those beliefs with every facet of my being, but I have no interest in being a tidy human. I seek to self-sustain and look for alternatives, to see different opportunities as they are and constantly ask myself if I am doing some good by my terms and no one else's. I now understand what Halberstam says when they write, For queers, failure can be a style to cite Crisp, or a way of life to cite Foucault, and it can stand in contrast to the grim scenarios of success that depend on trying and trying again. In fact, if success requires so much effort, then maybe failure is easier in the long run and offers different rewards. Sean Hansen is an Oberlin alum, double degree, class of 2011. He currently lives in Brooklyn, New York, where he volunteers with the Blue Stockings Bookstore, Fair Trade Cafe, and Activist Center. Our next story is from Carolyn Michaels. There's a term for what's wrong with me. It's called poor executive function and it's commonly associated with disorders like depression and ADHD. Technically, what it means is that my ability to execute higher-level cognitive functions planning, organizing, dividing my attention between multiple tasks is impaired. Functionally, what it means is that I'm a flaky disaster. I can't keep a room organized, I regularly double-book myself, I can't leave the house without realizing I've forgotten something, and I lose everything. I didn't know the term for it growing up, and I also had no coping skills in place to deal with it. All I knew, and all my parents knew, was that I lost something almost every day. Small things. Trinkets. A jacket. A pin. A homework assignment. And every time it happened, the sky would fall. No one around me ever seemed to understand that the world was ending. My parents were understandably frustrated with my irresponsibility. But eventually, when I'd been crying for hours and showed no signs of stopping, or when I was struggling to breathe because I couldn't stop panicking, they would become puzzled. Honey, it's just a thing, they would tell me. Things aren't that important. They didn't understand. 
I knew that these objects weren't important. That wasn't the point. The point was that I had lost them, and was, as a result, a bad person. The worst person. Welcome to the wonderful world of catastrophic thinking. Another hallmark of depression and anxiety. Fifth grade was my worst year. My memories of it are scattered. A meltdown in the public library over a homework assignment. My parents driving me to the locked school and finding ways in so I could hunt for whatever trivial objects I'd lost. Losing a pin and calling my mother to confess. Crying so hard she thought someone had died. I fixated obsessively on the repetitive and familiar. Jumping rope for hours on end reading the same comic books over and over, dozens and hundreds of times. My diary from that year is filled with pages of desperate pleas to God to help me find this or that object. One day, my mother tried giving me Guatemalan worry dolls. Tiny, matchstick things, no bigger than half an inch, wrapped in thread to resemble clothing. Their tiny faces were three dots for eyes and a mouth. You tell a doll your worry and put it under your pillow, my mother told me, and she'll take it away, and in the morning your worry will be gone. She had given me a drawstring pouch with five or six dolls. This caused its own kind of anxiety. I had decided each doll could handle only one worry. Which ones to tell them? Which five or six worries could I choose from the dozens that plagued me? Which half-dozen lost objects should I ask them to help me find? It was a nightly struggle. It's been ten or eleven years since then, and somehow a few of those dolls have stayed with me. Through a move to another state, and moving to and from college a dozen times, somehow a few of them have always ended up with me. And I'm glad they've stayed with me. I kind of feel like they're protecting me. Maybe they listened to all the things I've lost. And even if they couldn't help me recover them, they knew they could help by staying found. Carolyn Michaels is about to graduate from Oberlin College with a degree in psychology. She still loses everything. Our penultimate story this hour is from Larry Dunn. I'm wearing a borrowed Chicago Bears jacket and a cap pulled down over my eyes. It's too warm for the outfit, but I'm in desperate need of disguise. Sure that every passing stranger is an FBI agent, I am hiding in plain sight on a bench in the cavern of Chicago Union Station. I'm waiting for my friend Bill. He's bringing me the duffel bags Otto and I left at his house because we suddenly have to find new lodging. It's August of 1968. The mayhem of the Democratic National Convention in Chicago is just beginning. Otto and I are in town as youth representatives on the advanced planning team for the anti-war demonstrations. We're just teenagers, but we've been pressing our older and more famous colleagues, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Tom Hayden, you know, the Chicago Seven, we need to grab the young folks' attention, I say. We can't just march. We need more radical, direct action. 
we got to hit the power structure where it hurts. Finally, the old dudes give in, probably just to shut us up. Okay, one of them says, you design a direct action demonstration and bring us your plan. If it makes sense, we'll put it on the official program. Otto and I are founding members of Detroit-based YPFJ, Youth for Peace, Freedom, and Justice, or YIPFUGS. We're closely aligned with another Detroit group called People Against Racism. That alliance has sharpened YIPFUGS' anti-war stance with a broader anti-U.S. racist imperialism edge. First step, Otto and I do a little research at Chicago Public Library. Turns out Chicago is full of good targets for direct action, especially the banks. Many are heavily invested in South Africa, shoring up the apartheid regime. We don't dig that. Continental Illinois Bank is near the top of that list, and their headquarters has one very interesting feature, a subway station in the basement. A light bulb goes off. Let's hold the demonstration right inside the bank with our troops converging by subway to that basement station. We bring our proposal back to the planning team, and they're pretty impressed. One caveat, though, we got to go scout the actual location and make sure that we have clear exit routes when things start coming down too heavy. So Otto and I go over to the Continental Bank to case the joint. We arrive by subway at the basement station. Otto fans out to scope the basement. I go upstairs to check out exit paths to the street. I make a mental picture of everything, figuring I can draw it up later. My work is done and I head back downstairs, only to find Otto being frog-marched up the stairs by a security guard. Hey, stop right there, he shouts at me. Are you drawing diagrams of the bank too? The guard bum-rushed us to the security office, demands to see some identification. Just what do you think you're doing, he asks. My creative verbal invention skills kick into gear. Well, you see, we're model railroad enthusiasts. We're in Chicago visiting family friends and got to talking about Chicago architecture. I said, there are such great bank buildings here. We need a Chicago bank in our train layout. And well, Continental Illinois Bank is like the cream of the crop. Somehow, the old geezer buys our story. I don't go much for your long hair and all that, he says, but you seem like nice enough boys. Give me the name and the phone number of the people you're staying with, and I'll let you go. But you gotta promise me you won't draw any diagrams inside a bank anymore. We give him Bill's contact information and skedaddle out of there before he can change his mind. Unfortunately, the guard supervisor must see things differently. Later, when we get back to movement headquarters, one of the staff runs over the moment he sees me. Larry, do you know someone named Bill Nichols? He's been calling you in a panic every half hour. Says it's urgent you call him back. So I ring Bill right away. Larry, what the hell are you up to? The FBI was here. They want to talk to you about a bank robbery. What the hell are you doing? I get him calmed down enough to hear a quick version of what happened. I say, it's best if we don't come back there. 
Bill agrees to bring our stuff to Union Station that evening. He thinks I'm being a little overdramatic, but I guess he figures it's easier to do it than to argue about it. It's just getting dark as I see Bill approach. He leans against the wall under the big clock as we agreed. He drops our duffels to the floor and stuffs his hands in his pockets. He stays like that for a few minutes, eyeing every passerby. He lights up a cigarette. That's the signal. He has no reason to think he's being followed. Bill picks up the duffels, walks into the men's room across from where I'm sitting. A moment later, he walks out without the duffels and heads for a departing train. I get up and casually walk into the men's room, pick up the bags. Quickly, I disappear into the street, taking a deep, full breath of Chicago night air. I'm thinking I've eluded the FBI for good. Three weeks later, back home in Detroit, our doorbell rings at dinner time. My mother answers the door, calls out, Larry, are you in some kind of trouble again? The FBI is here looking for you. And I'm thinking, oh crap, how am I going to get lost this time? Larry Dunn is a contributing editor for the online contemporary music journal I Care If You Listen and a blogger for the International Contemporary Ensemble. Larry and his wife Arlene are in the process of moving to Kendall at Oberlin. Our final story of the hour from Ada Hetko. Someone told me once that if you accidentally leave something in a certain place, it's because you subconsciously want to return to that place. Like if you leave your sweater at your friend's house, it's because you love your friend, you feel at home at her house, you want to return. That's all well and good and very comforting if you're talking about sweaters and friends, but it's a little bit more disconcerting if you think about it in a broader context. I don't want to tell you how many times I have lost my cell phone in the past few months. If I drew a map, it would be like a spider web. Little threads going from my shoe to a pile of, of leaves to the house across the street to all the way back home in New York and back to Ohio to a wicker basket to the wrong pocket in my jeans. I don't want to take you there. I don't want to take you to the dirty corner of the Kolkata airport where I lost my watch last year. It's even more disconcerting if you're talking about losing friends. I kept up a correspondence by letter with a boy I met at summer camp for five years. Then one day, I got a postcard from Beijing. Postcards don't have return addresses. I was so excited to get the postcard. I wanted to respond, but I only had the old address. I didn't know how to get it to China. But I, I used his old address and found the postcard back in my mailbox a week later. I tucked it in the shoebox where I'd kept the letters from the past five years. I don't think it was on purpose. Nobody did anything. 
Nobody put something in the wrong place. Nothing moved except a feeling. But somehow we lost touch. The last thing I want is to lose touch, lose my grip. And it's bad when you're talking about losing your sense of direction. Don't trust me with your children. I got 30 11-year-olds lost on the Appalachian Trail a quarter mile from our campsite. We were looking, does this hill look a little, a little bit familiar? Oh, of course it looks familiar. We've been walking in circles for the past hour. Oh, does this tree look a little familiar? Mmm, I don't know. Is this the right tree? Is this the tree where we turned last time? They were getting a little panicky. My co-counselor was fed up. Didn't know the way back either. But somehow it was my fault. Somehow it was my fault. She was the one who found the way back. I don't want to take you back there. I don't want to take you back to when I was trying to find this research center in the suburbs of Madurai, India, and I was biking alone, and the sweat was pouring down my face, and then the sweat was mixing with tears, and I almost biked straight into a street temple where six women were, were preparing puja. They all looked at me surprised, and started laughing. I don't blame them for laughing. I don't want to keep you there. I don't want to hold you at that moment. I don't want to return there. I want to fast forward to when Shaker came from the research center to find me. I'd called him up on my phone. And he came with his motorbike, and he, he kind of stepped off in this pop star fashion and said, follow me. Neither do I want to take you to Ann Arbor, Michigan, on a Friday night in January, snowstorm, whoosh, gusts, gusts. I'm in frat row, Friday night, snowstorm, whoosh. I know I have to turn on a street with a bird name. Is it Huron? Is it Lark? I feel like if I had a compass in my pocket, the hands would be pointing one way, another way, another way. There would be 30, 40 hands. Everything is white. I don't want to leave you there. I want to say, come home. Follow me. I want to follow. Ada, you are not a bad person. I know. Ada, you are not lost. I know. You are just uncertain. Ada Hetko, Oberlin College class of 2013, is still an artist. I was adrift, directionless and wayward lost, like a swallow on.
slowly I found purpose and my life became more clear. I found my destination, yeah, but now where do I go from here? Cause I'm That's all for this episode of The Second Page. To hear it again or submit stories, please visit makesomethingeveryday.com slash secondpage. Again, that's makesomethingeveryday.com slash secondpage. Next week's theme is truth, stories about the quest for truth, stories about hiding the truth, or stories that may or may not themselves be true. All of the musical tracks used in this week's episode have been released by their original artists under a Creative Commons license that allows anyone to use and remix their tracks. Please check out and support these artists. We use tracks from Kirk Pearson, Bomb the Music Industry, Josh Woodward, Poddington Bear, and Nine Inch Nails. A listing of the artists will be provided on our website. Thank you to all of our storytellers this week, to Hillary, to Mayan, to Shane, to Sean, to Carolyn, to Larry, and to Ada. Thank you to Amanda Lozada for the intro, and a huge thank you to both Amanda and Sean Hansen for being my constant muses, the people I can rely on to work with me on my ideas. Thank you to Allison Swaim for her advice and assistance. Thank you to WOBC for putting us on the air. This has been The Second Page on WOBC 91.5 FM, Oberlin College and Community Radio. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next week with stories about the truth. is done the finish lines behind you and you have lost or you have won the crowd goes home and you're still standing on that empty track the lights are out the crowd is gone but there's no going back because you're already there